Well, the March 10th, 1996 edition of Parade Magazine had an article called In the Valley of the Shadow, and it featured an interview with Carl Sagan. Some of you are not old enough to remember Carl Sagan, but he was a famous astronomer and atheist of the past. And Sagan at the time was struggling with a terminal illness. And in this interview, he said, I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again. That some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. But as much as I want to believe that, and despite the, the ancient worldwide cultural traditions that assert an afterlife, I know of nothing to suggest it is nothing more than wishful thinking. Death, Sagan said, is nothing more than an endless, dreamless sleep. And then he closed by saying, this is perspective has given me a little extra motivation to stay alive. Now, unfortunately, just a few months after that interview, Carl Sagan died. And when he did, I'm sad to tell you that he found that what he thought was wrong. Sagan had said, there is nothing to suggest that life after death is anything more than wishful thinking. But as we're going to see in the Bible today, God says there is life after death. God who created us, God who made us, God who made the world, God who gave us his word says there is life after death, both for the believer and the unbeliever. So I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 12, where we're going to be looking at the last part of the vision that we began looking at in Daniel chapter 10. You remember that chapters 10 through 12 of Daniel are a final vision. We saw that Daniel was on the banks of the Tigris River. The angelic messenger appeared to him to give this final vision. And as we get to Daniel uh, 12, 5 through 7, you see it's a continuation as there are more messengers that appear to Daniel on the banks of the Tigris River. But I want to start where we left off last time in Daniel 12, 1 through 2. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, the time of distress that has never occurred is speaking of the tribulation. You'll recall back in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, we saw this prophecy of the 77s. And in that prophecy, God revealed that there would be a period of seven weeks or seven times seven years, as we talked about in detail, and that covered 49 years. And then there would be a period of 434 years or the 62 sevens, which would end when the Messiah would be cut off. And we saw that this was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Christ that happened on Friday, April 3rd in 33 AD. Now, after Jesus was buried, he rose from the dead three days later. The scriptures tell us that he walked the earth for 40 days, appearing to more than 500 witnesses. And then Jesus told the disciples, I have to go to the Father so that the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, can come. Jesus ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father where he's waiting uh, to return at the second coming. And when Christ ascended on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit he spoke of, came and indwelt all believers. And so we're in this period right now called the church age. God operates at different times in different ways. We've talked about this before in other messages where it's called dispensationalism, how God operates in a certain way at a certain time. And so in the church age, we as New Testament Christians are indwelt, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he is here with us, but there is a day coming when he will be withdrawn. 
We saw last week the man of lawlessness when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is removed, uh, will show himself for who he is. And this happens at what's called the rapture. The rapture is the Latin word rapturo, which means to be caught up. And it speaks of when we who are living believers will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and those who have physically died will also be having their physical bodies resurrected to be caught up to meet their eternal souls, which are already in heaven. Second Corinthians 5.8 tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when a Christian dies, the eternal part of who we are, our souls immediately go into the presence of God. And then there will be this resurrection of our physical form where we receive our permanent resurrection bodies we're going to talk more about in this message. So at the rapture, uh, Christians are taken to meet the Lord in the air, and then we go to be with him in heaven, where we're waiting to return physically to the earth at what is called the second coming of Jesus Christ. But as we're removed from the earth, this is when Antichrist will unleash his fury in the final 70th seven called the tribulation. You'll remember we saw there in Daniel 9.27 that it said three and a half years in, or what is called the middle of the week, would be when Antichrist would reveal himself for who he is and demand to be worshipped as God. This will unleash the final three and a half years of the tribulation, a terrible time of suffering for all on the earth, but the Jews will be a specific target. And he would have, uh, just as we saw last week, it looks like just as the nation of Israel is about to be wiped out, as they're, they're trapped in the... Uh, Christ will return at the second coming. This is when he physically returns to the earth. Zechariah 14 tells us he will stand on the Mount of Olives. And this is when the armies of heaven, we who are raptured believers, return with Christ for this battle called Armageddon. And you'll remember it was so named because it takes place there on the, the plain by Har Megiddo, Har, the Hebrew word for mountain. So Har Megiddo or Armageddon is where the nations Uh, the world nations are going to gather for this final climactic battle when Christ returns. Now, at the second coming, uh, those who oppose God are wiped out at the battle of Armageddon, while those who believe in God are saved, which is what Daniel 12, 1 is telling us, where it says, those whose name is found written in the book will be rescued. This is speaking, remember, specifically of the Jews. This prophecy is telling Daniel what is going to happen with the nation of Israel. At this point, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints also takes place, as well as those who were martyred during the tribulation. You'll remember during the tribulation period, many will come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. The Bibles will not have been raptured. Sermons will not have been raptured. Some who thought they were Christians who have attended church but never really placed their faith and trust in the Lord will be left behind. But during the time of the tribulation, many will come to faith. And as we saw last time as well, they will not worship the beasts. They will be martyred for their faith. And it's at this point that they will also be resurrected. And this is what we're reading about in Daniel 12 too. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. Now, this word everlasting that you see there in Daniel 12 too, I want to mention this word because it's the Hebrew word olam. And it speaks of eternal life. It speaks of uh, everlasting, as you see it translated. It's the same word you'll notice that is used to speak of both everlasting life as well as everlasting judgment. And I'm mentioning this because maybe you've heard of something called annihilationism. And that's a theological term for those who believe that those who are separated from God in the lake of fire, what we call hell, will only suffer judgment for a period of time and then they cease to exist. 
Friends, I would love for that to be the case. I don't want to see people separated from God for all eternity. But as we're looking at the scriptures, we have to look at what God's word says. And this same word that is speaking of both everlasting life is the same word for everlasting judgment, olam. Now, what that means is if we take the separation of those in judgment to be just a limited time, then it means our time as Christians in heaven will also be for a limited time because it has the same meaning. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And if you look at Daniel 12, 2, and the, the Hebrew olam was translated to Ionius. That's the Greek word for eternal. And again, in both places of both judgment and life, eternal life, it speaks of Ionius. Now, we can compare that with Matthew twenty five forty six, which was written in Greek. And there it says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, Ionius is used in both places. And finally, you can look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you want to guess what the word eternal is there? It's Ionius. So again, as we're talking about this eternal uh, part of who we are, because we are created as men and women in the image of God, we are eternal. We do not cease to exist. And what God has given to us is the way to be with him for all eternity through accepting his son, Jesus Christ, as our personal savior. And so if you've never accepted that gift of God's grace, I invite you to do so. We're told in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. And remember, as we just read in John three sixteen, for God so loved you, you're in the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Put your name in there. If you will believe in Christ, it says you will have eternal life. Now, as we're talking about eternity, as we're talking about being resurrected for all times, there are resurrections in the Bible that took place which were temporary. And on this slide, you see these resurrections we find in the Bible. Uh, God used Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, to raise the widow of Zarephath's son in 1 Kings 17.22. Another prophet by the name of Elisha was used to raise the Shunammite widow's son in 2 Kings 4.35. There was a man whose body was thrown into Elisha's grave, and when he came in contact with the bones of this prophet, he came back to life in 2 Kings 13.21. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter in Mark 5.42, as well as the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7.15. And Jesus also brought, brought Lazarus back from the dead in John 11.44. When Jesus was crucified, as you read the account in Matthew, it tells us that as, as Jesus died, there were multiple holy ones who came back to life in Matthew 27.52-53. The apostle Peter raised Tabitha in Acts 9.40, and in Acts 20.10, Paul brought Eutychus back from the dead. So these are individuals you'll notice I've labeled as temporary resurrections, and the reason for that is while each of them were brought back from the physical death that they had experienced, they all died again physically. It is only one person so far who has received a resurrection who will never again die, and that is Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it tells us, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And the reason Christ is called the first fruits is because he is the first to receive his permanent uh, resurrection body, which will never again be sick, injured, or die again. 
And when we read about the rapture of the New Testament believers in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, that will be a permanent resurrection as well for us. There it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And this is what I just described earlier about the rapture. We who are physically living will be caught up. Our bodies will be transformed into this permanent glorified state we will have for all eternity. The physical remains of loved ones of the past will be brought back together and they will be joined with their eternal souls which are already in the presence of the Lord. Now, that's the rapture of New Testament believers. Remember I said God operates with us in different ways at different times. When it comes to the Old Testament saints, Old Testament saints like Abraham, who it says believed in God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Jonah, Noah, you go through all the lists. Uh, The Old Testament saints will also have a permanent resurrection. They are not resurrected at the rapture. We see here in Daniel uh, 12, 1 and 2, when their resurrection is going to occur. It, It tells us in the Old Testament, they knew that a resurrection was coming. You read the book of Job. Job said in Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 26, And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. He says, I know Jesus will return. My Redeemer lives. He will take his stand on the earth. That's Zechariah 14. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And Job, who has since died, says, I know my skin, my physical flesh, will see him eye to eye. The prophet Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah 26:19: Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Now, as we see here in Daniel 12, 1 through 2, this resurrection of Old Testament saints is at the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns to the earth. This is also when those who came to Christ during the tribulation, who had been martyred for their faith, are resurrected. We see this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And we know these are the tribulation believers because it says, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their heads. And notice when they come back to life, they reign with Christ for a thousand years. And so we know this is at the second coming of Christ because that is the point that Jesus returns to the earth. He's seated on the Davidic throne and he will begin this thousand year reign this earthly kingdom here on the earth called the millennial kingdom. And the resurrection of Old Testament believers and tribulation saints happens at this point because God wants them to enjoy the rewards of the eternal kingdom. And so he brings them back to life, gives them their physical resurrected bodies to be a part of this kingdom here on earth. And this is what we see described Uh, At the end of the millennial kingdom, there's another resurrection, but this one is for the unbelievers. Revelation 20 verse 5 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. 
And so for these, we see when they are raised is at the end of the thousand years. It says very clearly they, come, they do not come to life until the thousand years are complete. Revelation 20 verse 7 tells us, and when the thousand years are completed. And then verses 11 through 12 of Revelation 20 say, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Revelation twenty thirteen through 15 goes on to say, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what we find here is at the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be something called the great white throne judgment. The one who's seated on the throne is Jesus Christ. John 5.22 tells us God the Father has given all judgment to the Son. It says that all the unbelievers from the very beginning of time to that moment are resurrected physically. They've, they've died. Some are buried in the sea. Some are buried in the dust of the ground. Wherever they are, it doesn't matter. God resurrects their flesh. They're given their permanent bodies that will last for all eternity. And it says at that point, they are judged not for rewards, but for judgment. Because they have rejected the payment Jesus Christ made at the cross. And because of that, that's why they are rejected. And God says their destination is singular, the lake of fire. This is what we call hell. And so they are separated from God for all eternity because they refuse to receive the payment that he made on the cross for their sins. And so he says, you have to make the payment. You see, when we sin, and we all do, because Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin means to be disobedient, to uh, do something God has said not to do, to break his law, to break uh, any law. If you lie, cheat, steal, if you take a cookie when your parent told you not to, you've sinned, you've disobeyed. And as a sinner, we owe a penalty. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Some people say, well, I can work my way to God. I can be good enough to earn my way to heaven. And God says, all we earn, wages of sin, is death. Now, remember, they physically died the first time which is why they were buried in the sea or the earth. But now they've been resurrected. So God says you are now dealing with the second death. Death is defined as separation. It's the separation of our soul from our body. Medical science will tell you when brain activity ceases, when a heart is no longer beating, there is a death. You are separated from your body at that point in God's terms. And so when he says there is a second death, what he's saying is you will be separated from me for all eternity in the lake of fire. Now, as those who have been saved because we received his death in our place, it says we will be welcomed into heaven. We are not at the great white throne judgment. Christians do not face the great white throne judgment. We'll talk in a moment about the Bema seat and where believers will be. But for those who have accepted God's gift of grace, we will be with him in heaven for all eternity. And as those who understand who Jesus is and what he's done, God says, we have a responsibility. It's not just to say, okay, I'm taken care of. 
I have my fire insurance policy in my back pocket, and I know where I'm going when I die. God says, as those who understand the gospel, those who know who Christ is and what he did, we have a responsibility to share the truth. We see this in Daniel 12, 3. It says, and those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And now in verse 4, he's speaking to Daniel particularly. He says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words, seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now when Daniel is told here to conceal and seal up what's been revealed, it's not saying hide what you've been shown. Rather, what it's saying here is to preserve these things. You see, remember that Daniel's being shown this in 536 B.C. They didn't have computers. They didn't have copiers. They didn't have all the ways we do uh, to share information. So the way that information was shared, the way this prophecy was, was written down is one of two ways could be done. You could take a clay tablet, and they would take wet clay, and they would impress in it uh, what was being said. And then as the clay would harden, it would, it would uh, right before it was hardened over, they would take a signet ring that had their, their seal of, or their name and authority, and they would impress it upon the clay. It's kind of like a notary seal in our day where anybody reading that document would be able to say, I see your attestation that this is true and accurate, that this is what has been revealed to you. So when Daniel is told to seal it up, if he was using a clay, that would be one way. The other way is they would take a parchment, either papyri, which was beaten out, uh, reeds, it was the kind of paper they made, or then when they started using uh, vellum or animal skins, they would write on there, and as you would roll up the scroll, they would drip wax on it, and again, they would seal it so that the letter couldn't be opened. You know, we have envelopes today we kind of rip open. Well, you would break the seal on a scroll, and then you could open it and read it. And so as Daniel is being told, seal this up, He would have written it down, sealed the scroll. They would put it in a jar, sealed that over, kind of like where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the Qumran caves. They were in pots that had been sealed to protect it, and that's why they were so well-preserved out of the elements and hidden away. And so Daniel is being told here to certify by his personal seal the faithfulness of the foregoing text as a transcript of what God had communicated through his angel. And then it says in verse 4, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now, the back and forth reference here could be one of two things. Some see it as the, the traveling throughout, uh, the increase in travel that's happened, you know, as civilizations have developed. Others see it as a reference to the eyes literally running to and fro over the paper, as we see in another Old Testament book, as it speaks of, of that. And so either one could fit here. Because what the point is, it's telling us how people will try to discover the meaning of these prophecies. And scholars in our day travel the world. They excavate ancient civilizations. They study documents that have been found. And through their efforts, we have an understanding. In the first part of Daniel, we've talked extensively about fulfilled prophecy through the eyes, the lens of history. And we've seen what the meaning of the statues are, what the image of the animals are by comparing it to history. And so by knowing history, we clearly see the meaning of of some of the things revealed in Daniel earlier. Now, not everything is as clear. Daniel even tells us this here. He struggles 
with what's being seen here as he says in verse 8. As for me, I heard, but I could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And Daniel is told in verse 9, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Daniel is essentially being told you need to trust God to fulfill it. In its end, all of these things are going to be revealed as God said. And that's true for us as well. If you've ever read through Revelation, you know that there are what are called the seal, the bowl, and the trumpet judgments. And again, this idea of a scroll being sealed up as the seven seals are broken. You could write something down, roll the scroll up, drip some wax, seal it at that part, then you do the next, and you kept doing this. And so as each seal is broken, you're revealing just a portion of the prophecy. And as it's unrolled, as Revelation 6 through 19, those events in the tribulation are taking place, more and more of what has been hidden away is revealed, and these things will, will be happening during that terrible time of the last seven years. I want to remind you, as we've gone through the book of Daniel, we have seen amazing things, haven't we? We've seen so many prophecies and things that God revealed down to the minutest detail. And all of these things have been fulfilled just as God said would happen. And that also tells us the things to come that are yet to be fulfilled are also going to be uh, fulfilled. God's plan will be perfectly and fully um, run through to the very end. So even if we die as Daniel would, what we need to remember is we have the promise as believers that God is in control. And God has said to us as Christians, there is a day coming when we will rise again. If we die before the rapture occurs, God says, you are not going to miss out. God will raise you from the dead. And if we're here when the rapture occurs, that's even better. We all get to go together and be with God. So even if there are difficult days to come, we can rest in the promises of God. And, and Daniel tells us difficult things are coming. Look at verses 10 through 12. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. I want you to notice there are different periods of time that are mentioned in these verses. And they're different from the 1,260 days that we've seen all throughout Daniel to this point. Remember, as we've walked through the book of Daniel and we've talked about God's prophetic timeline, it's based upon a 360-day prophetic calendar that covers the three and a half years of the second half of the tribulation. It's called a time, times, and half a time, as we saw in Daniel 7.25, and again in Daniel 12.7. Revelation 12.14 also uses this. It's called three and a half years, which is equated with the 1260 days that we find in Revelation 11.3, as well as Revelation 12.6, which is equated with the 42 months of Revelation 11.2 and 13.5. So everything to this point has been 1,260 days. And yet now, here in Daniel 12.11, we're told there's 1,290 days. That's adding 30 days. And then in Daniel 12.12, there's an additional 45 days, bringing us to this 1,335 days. So why, at the very end, does Daniel drop this on us? What is he talking about? 
Well, if we look back at this chart where you see that little blue box I've put, uh, you see the 75 days. And we know that it's there at the beginning of the millennial kingdom because remember the 1260 days started at the abomination of desolation, the three and a half year mark of the seven years of the tribulation right before the second coming. So we come to 1260 days, you have the return of Jesus, and then you have these 75 days before the millennial kingdom, or they could be part of that first part of the thousand years. So what's happening in this 75 additional days? Well, we see in Daniel 12, 12, it says, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1335 days. So what he's saying is for those who make it through this little blue box, you will be blessed. So what's happening right there at the second coming is where Jesus is setting up his millennial kingdom. Now we've already seen this is where the Old Testament saints are raised. We've already seen this is where the tribulation believers are raised. And the reason for that is they will enter into physically during this thousand year period where they're going to have rewards and responsibilities based on how they stood for God during their lifetime. We see that God is speaking specifically to Daniel. In Daniel twelve thirteen. he says, then you, Daniel, are going to enter into rest. That means you're going to die. And you will rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Don't you just to stop for a minute and think how great God is to show that to Daniel. Here is a man who has lived faithfully for the Lord his whole life. God has been showing him all this to come. And he could have left it at that and said, Daniel, you know you're one of the Old Testament saints. You're going you're gonna to be you know, in the rewards in the millennial kingdom and with me for all eternity. But God says, Daniel, I want you to know I see you. And I want you to know that I've seen your faithfulness. You've been a man who stood for me when many compromised and would not. You've been a man who have served earthly kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius the Mede, but you're going to serve and reign with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Daniel, you are going to have a part of this. And it's not just Daniel who will be rewarded. We will as well, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, you will be with Jesus for the millennial kingdom here on earth. And we will have rewards and responsibilities. You can read the parable of the talents in the New Testament. You can read the parable of the minas. In fact, next Sunday, we're going to come back and we're going to have a bonus sermon uh, in the end times here. We were supposed to have our missionary from India here next Sunday, but he cannot be with us. And so I have an open Sunday before our Advent, and I wrestled with what do I, what do I cover during that time. And I'm going to give you a bonus sermon on the end times. And some of you are going, yes. And some of you are going, oh, no, I thought this was the last sermon. And Daniel, I'm so glad we were there. Well, what we're going to talk about in this message is the Bema Seat. The Bema Seat is the judgment stand that Christians go before the Lord. We've talked extensively about the great white throne judgment. That's where the unbeliever is judged and sent to hell. But we as Christians will not be at the great white throne judgment. We will face the beam of judgment seat, which is where our life works will be rewarded. It will be the responsibilities we are given to crow reign with Christ during the millennial kingdom. So next Sunday, we're going to come back and cover that since we have this open Sunday. 
Now, as we look at what's happening here in this 75 days, there's something else called the judgment of Israel as well as the judgment of nations. As you read through the scriptures, you'll find in Ezekiel 20 and Malachi 3 and in Matthew 25 where the nation of Israel is judged at this point. And then the judgment of the nations being the goyim, the Gentiles, is found in Joel chapter 3 and Matthew 16 as well as Matthew 25. And so there is these separate judgments. Let me read to you uh, what the judgment of the nations is out of Matthew 25, 31 through 34. It says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's his second coming, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats to the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In Ezekiel 20, verses 34 through 38, it's the judgment of Israel. It says, And I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. With a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall bring you in into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I shall enter into judgment over you face to face. This is when Christ is physically on the earth and, he, and Israel sees the promised Messiah, their king. He says, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And I shall make you pass under the rod, and I shall bring you into the bond of the covenant. Remember how I told you part of the millennial kingdom is the literal fulfillment to Israel of the covenants and promises. That the church has not replaced Israel. And here Jesus says, I will fulfill the covenants. And I shall purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. These things fit what we see in verse 12 where it says, How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. God says those who are the goats, those who are separated and judged will be removed and they will go to death. They will not enter physically into the millennial kingdom. But Israel and the believers will come into into the millennial kingdom. There's the 1260 days of the last half of the tribulation and then this period of judgment where he's separating out the nations. And those who are welcomed into the millennial kingdom will enjoy the blessings. Now at the end of the millennial kingdom is when all the unbelievers from the beginning of time are going to have their physical resurrection. Remember the sea will give up the dead, the earth will give up the dead, and they will come before the great white throne judgment. And unfortunately for them, there is one destination. They are sent to the lake of fire. They will spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire because they rejected him. But we will go into the eternal state as resurrected believers. We will be with God for all eternity. The heavens and earth will be recreated in perfection, and we will be uh, with God forever. So there is a day coming when everyone will face Jesus in judgment. As Christians, our entrance into heaven has already been decided at the cross. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, our name is recorded in the book of life. At the great white throne judgment, nobody's name is in the book of life. That's why it's only non-believers who are there. 
For we, we who are Christians, for us, there will be the beam of judgment seat we'll talk about next week. And at that judgment, when we enter into heaven, as a believer in Christ who has lived his or her life faithfully for the Lord, we will hear the words of Matthew twenty-five, twenty-three. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. But friends, those who have rejected Christ will hear different words out of Matthew. They will hear the words, depart from me, for I never knew you. And so if you're here today, if you're worshiping with us online or at Stone Oak, and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I invite you to do so, to accept his gift of eternal life that he's given to you. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. He invites you today to recognize your need for Christ and his payment on the cross where he shed his blood to wash away your sins. So if you've never accepted his death in your place, and today you understand your need for him as a savior, and you're saying, God, I want to accept your gift of grace. I believe, Jesus, you died for me. You rose from the dead as you said you would, conquering sin and death, and today I accept your gift of new life. Then as we close today, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I invite you to pray it with me. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You can do this worshiping with us online at home, wherever you are listening to this sermon. And if you'd like to do that, I invite you now to bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life, and having been disobedient, I owe a penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and you died for me. I thank you, Jesus, that your blood has paid that penalty of death I owe, that you've washed away my sins. I believe that you are indeed the promised Messiah, the Son of God, as you proved by rising from the dead, conquering sin and death. And today, Jesus, I accept your gift of grace. Today, God, I accept your Son, Jesus, to be my personal Savior. I thank you, God, for welcoming me into your family, for giving me the gift of eternal life. As one who now belongs to you, would you help me to live for you? I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front. I'd love to talk to you to make sure you understand that step of faith you just took. If you're worshiping online, please email us at waysidechapel.org. We would love to get some materials in your hand to follow up with you to make sure you understand uh, this step of faith you just took. For the rest of us who have received the Lord, remember, we're not just to sit back and wait for these events to unfold. God has called on us to go into the world to share the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. So would we be faithful to carry the good news of the one way home to heaven? As Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Thank you for worshiping with us. Look forward to seeing you again next Sunday, either here or online. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Well, thank you again for being here.